0: Welcome to the Horror Babel Originals Podcast. The Lore of the Dreamscape by Ian Gordon. Part 4 The White Room. What? Murphy muttered, scanning his surroundings. The man who had leapt into the darkness, was lying in a crumpled heap in the middle of what appeared to be a cluttered living room. Light streamed into the room from a large, oval window, revealing a variety of objects—an old mahogany dresser host to a chess rook and a squirrel clutching a crystal ball, a display cabinet filled to the brim with dusty books, a coffee table littered with magazines and faded photographs— and a great fireplace, housing a healthy fire. "'Cup of tea, young man!' came a voice from across the room. It was the familiar voice of Hilda, the elderly lady who had provided him and Van Melsen, with refreshments earlier that same day—if it was, in fact, the same day. Uh Murphy mumbled, stumbling to his feet. "'Please—' The young man had managed a couple of steps in no particular direction, when it occurred to him that he was no longer in possession of the little black box. The curious lamp was missing, too. Only the strip of material torn from his T-shirt remained, tucked into the pocket of his faded jeans. "'Through here, Jason,' came another familiar voice. This one belonged to the gaunt chap in the overcoat, Peter Van Melsen. Murphy made his way across the carpeted room and entered the dining room. "'What happened?' the young man asked, seating himself opposite the man tasked with his safe return home. "'I had it, Peter. Had it right here,' he added, dangling the strip of material in front of Van Melsen's face. "'Of course you did,' Van Melsen stated. "'You wouldn't be here otherwise.' "'Here we go,' said Hilda, placing piping hot cups of pine needle tea in front of the pair at the table. "'Then, ogling Murphy?' "'You especially, young man, should drink all of that down.' Nodding, and suddenly very aware of his thirst, Murphy sipped at the tea enthusiastically. "'Thanks,' he said, as Hilda shuffled away. "'How do you feel?' Van Melsen asked, studying the dark rings around the young man's eyes. "'Exhausted,' he breathed, holding the cup close to his chest." I can only imagine—the investigator responded—but I have it on good authority that your efforts yielded the desired result. Murphy looked up at the gaunt man, a look of hope filling his face. Garty has been restored? he asked. That it has, Van Melson replied, grinning like a madman. The Great Realm is as it once was—rather like the Tenators never encountered the strange machine. What— happened to the box. Where is it? Gone from this place. Didn't you say you had it? Not any more. Van Melsen said, gesturing towards the cluttered room. The moment you appeared in that room, I ceased to sense it. But I still don't understand, Murphy blurted, Why did these so-called old ones call for the destruction of Garty in the first place? And how were my actions able to restore it? Some things go above and beyond the matters of why and how, Jason. Destructive forces, the old ones included, are abundant. Should we question the morality of a volcanic eruption? Repudiate the power of the sun? These things, by their very nature, are incapable of ethical reasoning. Your seizure of the box was a moral act. The strange machine recognized it as such, and reversed the destruction it had caused— and that's it? Murphy pleaded, frowning. As far as the little black box is concerned, yes, Van Melsen said, nodding. As for you and me, he continued, we're actors in a play. Ahead of us is the fifth and final act, or, more appropriately, the fourth and final step. For several moments, the pair sipped pine-needled tea in quiet contemplation. Where do we go from here? the young man asked. "'There's another structure,' the P.I. stated. "'Far from here. A desert plain houses a vast tower, much taller than the Citadel. I caught a glimpse of it prior to your return to Muppin. It was the last thing the box revealed to me. I'm certain we'll find what we're looking for there. We must find it.' "'How?' Murphy begged. The notion of further adventure increasing his lethargy— Haven't you worked that out by now? Follow the wind, the young man said, with just the slightest hint of cynicism. Van Melsen nodded, displaying that toothy grin again. But we must move, Jason. He's coming. The man in the hat? Yes. Without the box, you're his only option. He knows you want out of this place, knows his only chance of escape is to overtake you at the finish line, as it were. If your actions result in the opening of a door, all he needs to do is step through it before you. The young man sighed. I'm not sure I can make it, Peter, he said. I'm done. Of course you can, Van Melsen stated affirmatively. And besides, you won't be heading out there alone this time. No? Absolutely not, came the decisive tones of the investigator. I'll be right there with you all the way. Murphy managed a smile, and nodded. Now get some rest, Van Melsen continued. You'll need to be refreshed for the journey ahead of us. Again, the man in the black t-shirt nodded, climbing to his feet. This way, dearie, instructed Hilda, who had emerged from the depths of the house to escort Murphy to the guest room. The exhausted thirty-one-year-old crawled onto the comfortable bed that awaited him in the quaint guest room, and lay back. He denied the swarm of thoughts that threatened to invade his mind, and fell asleep the second his head hit the feather pillow. When Murphy awoke, he found the gaunt character Peter Van Melson towering over him. "'Time to be moving on,' the investigator said, handing Murphy a pair of plimsolls. "'I reckon these should fit,' he added, glancing at the young man's dusty feet. "'Belong to Hilda's late husband.' "'Thanks,' Murphy uttered with a grimace. Slipping the plain plimsolls on, the young man crossed the room and splashed his face with water from a pail at the end of the bed. Thereafter, he and Van Melsen left the small house, thanking the elderly lady once more for her hospitality." May the wind be at your back, Hilda offered, as the steadfast men stepped out into the twilight. mappen was bustling. Villagers went about their business on the quiet streets, carrying large sacks of grain and firewood back and forth between dwellings. A crimson sky enclosed the scene, the last vestiges of the fleeting orange sun. Gaging the direction of the wind, Van Melsen led them south, out of Muppin and the Vale, and back onto the open plains into which the pair had plunged some time ago. The landscape was different, under the violet light. The surrounding hills were reduced to dark, looming forms, the plain itself little more than a sprawling expanse, a vast swath across which the gentle wind encouraged them. Soon enough, darkness was absolute, the unlikely pair yielded to the breeze, a comforting gale that offered a sense of purpose. And then, quite abruptly, Van Melsen whispered, He's here. What? Murphy blurted. Him? The investigator nodded, urging them onwards. The young man studied his immediate surroundings, saw nothing. But when he turned his head, and looked north, back along the expanse— He thought he detected the faintest of outlines in the deep distance—the suggestion of a figure—a dark figure in a trilby hat. "'Let your eyes look directly forward,' Van Melsen quoted, "'and your gaze be straight before you.' And as the investigator spoke, a small black dot appeared in front of them. The dot floated just ahead of them, matching their pace. "'See it, Jason?' "'Yes.' Murphy said, drawn to the spot. We must walk a little faster, Van Melsen instructed, increasing his pace. The man in the plane plimsolls matched it. Faster still, came the instructions of the P.I., and once more, upped his pace. And Murphy matched it, again and again, until the pair of them were jogging towards the little black dot ahead of them. As the pair accelerated, the spot began to expand— growing rapidly, until it was about the size of a manhole cover. And then, the floating circle became a square, and the scene surrounding them—the dark skies and darker grass, the suggestion of hills astride the plain—was pulled towards it, like water swirling down a drain. "'Run, Jason!' Van Melsen called, observing the instability of the ground beneath his feet— The pair went like the clappers in pursuit of the dark mass ahead of them, as it sought to draw the very landscape around them into its heart like dust into a vacuum. The world they occupied was collapsing exponentially, compelled as it was by the singularity. Murphy knew what the P.I. was about to yell before the words left his mouth. "'Jump, Jason!' Van Melsen shouted, and without hesitation— the young man leapt towards the dark square. The investigator followed in quick succession, and a nanosecond later, the pair were gliding through mid-air, prior to landing with considerable force, on a polished wooden floor. The intrepid pair were surprised to find themselves back in New Babylon, prone, on the stage of the theatre. But it wasn't as it had been before. The main hall and parterre were crammed, filled to the brim with spectators. The gods were packed, too, clean-shaven and made-up faces staring down at them. The expectant crowd watched closely, as the pair climbed to their feet, studying their surroundings. Turning, Murphy was the first to notice the painting on the easel. It was manifestation, and once again it was alive with motion. Within its depths was a figure, the man in the hat, traversing a shadowy plain, barely visible under starry skies. Van Melsen dashed towards the painting, and put his fist through it. Murphy was immediately at his side, tearing at the canvas, squashing the fragments in his hands. This display of violence seemed to provoke a reaction from the audience. A solitary voice shouted, followed by a number of claps and whistles. In a matter of seconds— the entire audience was upright, engaged in the act of applauding and cheering. It was a standing ovation the pair were receiving—a celebration of their demolition. Automatically, driven to it by the overwhelming sense of elation in the air, the pair bowed to the adoring crowd, then took off backstage, in quest of the door labelled, Exit. But it was a new— New Babylon into which Murphy and Van Melsen plunged, on leaving the theatre. Bright sunlight stole their vision, as they descended the small flight of stairs at the back of the building. The steps delivered them to a massive expanse of sand, across which only rippling dunes met their gaze. The vivid yellow sun hovered directly above them, a scorching spotlight from which there appeared to be no shelter— the pair would have sought refuge in the theatre, but turning to survey the building they just left, their eyes met only a further extension of the barren sandscape. The theatre was gone, as was any evidence that it had ever stood there in the desert. But on the horizon, much closer than the unlikely duo might have dared hope, stood a strange structure, a perfectly vertical mast, or pylon, disappearing into the haze of the upper atmosphere. The sheer scale of the thing was unprecedented. Neither of the two men in its midst had ever gazed upon such a construction. It was undoubtedly that which they sought. Van Melsen was certain of the fact, owing to that fleeting glimpse provided by the box prior to its mysterious departure. The pylon stood alone on the horizon, its only company— the wandering dunes at its base. And then another curious thing occurred. The yellow sun above began to descend. It moved swiftly across the sky, crested the strange mast, then dipped out of view behind it. In doing so, a shadow was cast towards the awed pair, a shadow that would serve as both protection from the scorching orb, and a dark path towards the pylon. "'Let's go,' Van Melsen said simply, and took off along the new highway. Murphy walked at his side, his hand-me-down footwear providing protection from the red-hot sand. "'I'm not sure about this place,' the investigator said, as they crossed the difficult terrain. "'The desert?' the young man asked. "'The dreamscape. New Babylon, Gati, everything in between. There's something—' familiar about this place, and I'm not talking about dreams. What could it mean? I can't say, Van Melsen muttered, but I sense I've known this place. It's in the the air—the sun—if only I could put my finger on it. Murphy had little to say in response to that. His impression of the world into which he'd wandered was quite different. He thought of what the large dwarf read— had told him in the woods—the dreamscape is a transitional realm, a world between worlds. What could it mean for Van Melsen to have known it? But the young man chose to keep his mouth shut, as the investigator withdrew what appeared to be the last cigarette from the pocket of his blazer. Ah, well, Van Melsen breathed, lighting it. Be home soon. As the pair neared the mast They noted it was of metal construction—smooth, dark, but non-reflective, some fifty feet or so in diameter. Patterns were hewn into its surface—intricate etchings that as seen from a distance appeared to be random. On closer inspection, however, Murphy perceived the markings as extensive Cretan labyrinths, whereas Van Melsen saw them as the outlines of human brains— The duo located the entrance to the pylon, partially hidden, though it was, by the roaming sand. The door lacked embellishment of any kind, just a plain metal portal, offering little indication of what might lie beyond. Van Melsen wasted no time in brushing the sand away, and, with the assistance of the young man at his side, took hold of the metal door handle, and pushed it open. A narrow rotunda lay before them— close to a winding staircase. Mounds of dust peppered the stark concrete floor. A dozen white lights shone back at them from the smooth, round walls. Stepping inside, the P.I. motioned towards the stairs. I guess the only way is up, he said, wryly. Then, turning to the man in the black t-shirt, Are you ready for this? As ready as I'll ever be, Murphy muttered. Looking up into the central shaft. A black void looked back at him. It's dark up there, he added, looking to his colleague for reassurance. Well, I have my pocket lighter, Van Melsen said, withdrawing the golden object from an inside pocket. We'll use it sparingly. Hang on to the rail as we go. The young man nodded, willing to accept anything the investigator had to say at this point. Quietly now the P.I. added. Mustn't draw attention to ourselves. You think he's still on our trail? Murphy put in. Undoubtedly. Up the pair went, their right hands clinging to the wooden rail. Footfall followed footfall, as they climbed into blackness, the dedicated pair willing themselves onwards and upwards, toward some unknowable destination. After a solid thirty minutes or so of relentless ascent, Van Melsen insisted the two take a break, and out came the pocket-lighter. Tired, and somewhat dazed due to the spiralling ascent, the duo lay back on the steps, resisting the temptation to vomit. Murphy, panting, struggled to come to terms with the sheer scale of the mast. "'You saw it, Peter. How will we ever reach the top?' "'Oh, ye of little faith,' the P.I. returned. "'And anyway—' who said we're meant to reach the top. The thought hadn't occurred to the young man. We climb until we find what we're looking for, Van Melsen continued. The fourth step awaits us here. Of that, I am sure. Murphy pondered the notion. I feel like I know what the fourth step is, he said, turning to look at the gaunt face beside him, animated by the flickering flame of the lighter. It's on the tip of my tongue— "'I wish I could help draw it out of you,' the investigator said, smiling emptily. "'Let's get going,' the man in the black t-shirt asserted. Van Melsen flicked the lighter closed, and the pair took off climbing again. They hadn't been on their feet long, when the investigator stopped them in their tracks, and withdrew the lighter once again. "'What is it?' Murphy whispered. The P.I. put a finger to his lips, then mouthed, Listen. From far below, deep in the darkness, the sound of footsteps soared to meet their ears. The distinctive tread of heavy boots reverberated throughout the mast, the source of the sounds close at hand. It's him, Van Melsen stated matter-of-factly. Come on. The weary duo climbed with a renewed sense of urgency, step by step, utilising every ounce of strength to lift them ever higher, stretching the sinews of endurance to breaking point. And it was in the midst of this final push, that Van Melsen noticed a dim source of light above them, a soft glow that promised an end to their drudgery. A few more arduous steps, and the handrail to which they clung became visible. They saw again the stairway beneath their feet, and the cold metal walls of the rotunda. Almost there, the investigator managed, puffing and wheezing, cursing his smoking habit. The source of the soft glow was a narrow passage, a lengthy corridor, that, given the limited width of the pylon, shouldn't have existed. A lantern attached to a carrying stick was propped up by the entrance to the passage, an item Van Melsen was quick to collect, throwing it over his shoulder like a hobo's bindle. Into the corridor the PI went, and Murphy followed, his eyes drawn to the red brick walls enclosing them. The unlikely pair tramped along the passage for what seemed like hours, the walls around them unchanging, the darkness towards which they blundered ceaselessly beckoning. And when finally they reached the end of the tunnel, it was an inconspicuous wooden gate that awaited them, a gate exceedingly familiar to the man in the black t-shirt. "'How can this be?' Murphy mumbled, bewilderment drenching his words. The gate was small, and relatively simple in design, faded, scratched, and part painted a deep blood red. Affixed to a horizontal slat at the top of the gate was the Roman numeral X, in brass. "'I'm home again,' Murphy muttered. "'Tenby Fall Lane.' "'This is the back gate.' Van Melsen had surmised as much the moment he'd noticed the number in brass, but the purpose of the weird diversion eluded him. The lantern over his shoulder flickered as Murphy moved closer to the gate, tracing the familiar marks and indentations the young man recognised from childhood. With trembling fingers, he pushed the gate tentatively, and slowly it creaked open. "'Remember, Jason?' Van Melsen warned, as a new source of light streamed into the corridor. This isn't your home. You're in the dreamscape. Home is far, far away from here. Nodding, the man in the black t-shirt edged forward, stepping into the light. The space the pair now occupied was a large, empty room—white walls and white ceiling. No windows were visible, nor were there any doors— Even the source of light was impossible to detect—no spotlights, no candles—just a plain, white room, perfectly square. The young man and the investigator strolled into the heart of the room, some twenty paces or so, scanning its featureless walls for a means of egress. It was as though the room was formed of a single piece of exotic material, folded in such a way as to form a seamless cube— "'What is this place, Peter?' the young man asked, sniffing the air like a dog. Van Melsen shook his head, perplexed. "'I haven't—' "'Peter!' Murphy interjected, turning on his heel. The P.I. whirled round, his eyes drawn to the source of Murphy's consternation. By the wall, where before the little red gate had been, stood the unflinching man in the hat. His general appearance was clearly visible now— lit as he was by the unfathomable light source. He was tall and thin, sporting black trousers and a long overcoat. Black gloves covered his hands, black leather boots clung to his feet. But his face, shaded by the brim of his dark trilby, remained a mystery. "'Who are you?' Murphy cried, his heart racing in his chest. "Show yourself!' But the man remained inert. Motionless, a spectator awaiting some action on the part of his present company. "'What do you want?' the young man continued, pummeling the quiet figure for information. Van Melsen, on the other hand, remained completely silent in the stranger's presence. Somehow, he was intercepting the man in the hat's thoughts, obtaining information utterly mind-blowing to the investigator. How— He was intercepting it, Van Melsen hadn't the foggiest. But that was hardly important, given the nature of the data he was receiving. But then, quite suddenly, Murphy took a daring step forward. Step four! he yelled, elated. Face your fear! Face it! Overcome it! Embrace it! And the young man took another step forward. A small step, this one. Then another, a bigger one another, another, closing the distance between himself and the quiet figure in his midst. The stranger fought to conquer the will of the approaching man, covered his face with his gloved hands, shook his head in defiance. But the conviction of Jason Murphy was too much for the man in the hat. He recoiled and took several steps backwards, until he was flat against the white wall, wriggling and squirming— Van Melson watched in speechless awe, as the man in the black t-shirt, who before was so unsure of himself, so bewildered and helpless, now pounded the shadowy stranger with burst after burst of intense resilience, the likes of which the investigator had never encountered before. "'It's over!' Murphy yelled, chock-full of stony resolve now. "'It's time for you to leave!' And with those definitive words— The man in the hat turned and hurled himself at the white wall. The wall collapsed under the weight of the figure's body, and into a pit of darkness the man in the hat fell, leaving a rectangular frame in his wake, resembling a door. Murphy breathed deeply, took a moment to reorientate himself. Approaching the dark portal, he muttered, The path is complete. Van Melsen was instantly at his side his eyes drawn to the void beyond the rectangular frame. You did it, the investigator congratulated, patting the young man on the back. It all came back to me, Peter. The moment I laid my eyes on him, I knew what I had to do. Step four, face your fear. Face it, overcome it, embrace it. And the path is complete, Van Melsen finished. Murphy nodded, an air of wonder about him. Motioning to the rectangular frame, the investigator said, This door, I believe, is your salvation, Jason. What do you think happened to him? Murphy ventured, nodding at the void. You repelled him. Is he dead, do you think? Van Melsen shrugged. I hope so, he said. To this, Murphy frowned, repeating, You hope so? I'll explain on the other side. Come on, let's get the hell out of here. And with that, the unlikely duo crossed the curious threshold before them and returned to a more tangible world, a saner world. Epilogue The shopkeeper, Gary Cook, watched with wide, unblinking eyes, as the veil of vapour surrounding him in his imitation hooker lounge began to dissipate, revealing not one, but two individuals, sitting quietly on the array of cushions opposite him. Removing his mask, Cook was eager to address the pair. Peter? Gary! Gary! the P.I. replied, nodding casually. "'You haven't got a cigarette, have you?' "'Of course,' Cook announced, producing a pack of twenty from the breast pocket of his shirt. Lighting one, he proceeded to pass it to his old friend, a look of impatience staining his face. Inhaling deeply, Van Melsen motioned to the young man sitting next to him. "'Gary, meet Jason Murphy.' Murphy, still reeling from his weird adventure— Nodded in Cook's direction. Jason, Cook said, bowing his head in acknowledgement. How long was I out there? The investigator quizzed. Two, three hours, something like that. I haven't budged an inch. Then, as an afterthought, bladder like a camel. Van Melsen winced. Two or three hours? I was out there for days, Gary. Perception is a hell of a thing, old friend. What about him? He's been missing for over a decade. In response to which, Murphy returned a wry smile. It'd be a long time before he could wrap his head around the concept of his prolonged absence. In the hours that followed, Van Melsen, with sizable contributions from the young man, outlined the events that had transpired in the dreamscape. Murphy's experiences in the city of New Babylon, his encounter with the dwarf, Red and the entity known as Gertrude—the terrifying matter of the noble act in the great realm of Garty—and the final confrontation with the mysterious stranger in the White Room. Murphy's journey was an act of displacement, Van Melsen said. The four steps, in conjunction with the little black box, granted Murphy entrance to the dreamscape, but also a way back from it. The voice in his dreams— "'The words that lured him to that strange place "'belonged to the barnacled lady, "'the great Nokuth. "'She saw it all, Gary.' "'Cook was aghast, mumbling, "'saw what?' and the little black box, "'the meddling of the old ones, "'the man in the hat. "'The shopkeeper frowned, "'impatience obscuring his wizened face. "'It is he who we should concern ourselves with, Gary.' Van Melsen said. I spoke earlier with regards to my recurring dream. Then, addressing Murphy, A dream you and I have often shared, Jason. In the dream, I'm standing at the top of a peak in a vast cavern. Below me, a strange airship hovers above a lake. That's you up there? The young man exclaimed. There's more, Jason. He's there, too. The man in the hat— I believe he's the source of the dream—wants us to dream it. To what end? Cook put in, suitably intrigued. To make us aware of him, Gary—aware of his intentions. It wasn't Murphy reaching out to me in dreams. It was him. The barnacled lady knew it, too. That was why she called upon our sensitive dreamer here. She was working to prevent it. To prevent what, Peter? Cook pressed. "'The coming of the man in the hat,' Van Melsen stated. "'I intercepted his thoughts, Gary,' he continued. "'I sensed a tremendous desire on his part to walk amongst us, to subjugate and control us. As of yet, he's weak. We can only hope that Murphy's actions in the White Room destroyed him.' Nodding, Cook said, "'I have much to discuss with my colleagues. We need to get all this down on paper.' The loose ends, the paradoxes. Indeed, Van Nelson agreed. I fear our work here has just begun. Nudging Murphy, the investigator climbed to his feet. Come on, Jason, let's get some air. The two left the shopkeeper to his thoughts for a stretch, and stepped out into the muggy air of a July evening in Scotland. I've asked this before, Murphy began, but where do we go from here? Answers will be forthcoming, my friend, Van Melsen said, searching his pockets for the cigarettes he'd exhausted in the dreamscape. But we've much to contemplate, many stones to overturn. Murphy gazed into the clear night sky above. He looked to the moon, welcome the stars. Almost fourteen years, he muttered. Have I aged? Let's put it this way, the P.I. breathed abandoning his search for the depleted cigarettes. You look pretty good for someone in his mid-forties. How am I going to explain it? That's something you'll have to work out for yourself, Jason. Murphy shrugged. I suppose so. I've definitely got some loose ends to tie up. Van Nelson nodded. It'll take some time, he said, patting Murphy on the back. The answers we seek are out there. We just need to find them but even as he said it, the renowned paranormal investigator found himself troubled by a singular notion, and later, when jotting his experiences down in his journal, a.k.a. Survival Guide, he spoke of it explicitly. The stranger and I have something in common. I can't imagine what it might be, but I suspect it involves the dreamscape—the uncanny familiarity of the place have I roamed those weird streets and desolate plains before? I am all but certain I have, and I will again. And what of my dreams? I fear them now, for if I dream of him, I'll know that he survived that plunge into the void. A few days later, Jason Murphy found himself pulling onto Beefold Lane, West Broughton. Even prior to his uncanny disappearance, he hadn't been home for a long time. He and his mother had been at loggerheads for as long as he could remember. The death of the young man's father had transformed the relationship with his mother into something neither of them could stomach. It was a terribly sad state of affairs, but, after such a long absence, he was committed to the quarrel's resolution. Murphy parked on the curb outside his childhood home, and stared at the old place for the longest time, before climbing from the car. Approaching the house, the young man in his mid-forties, contemplated the brickwork and slate roof, admired the white wooden window frames, still so carefully maintained by his mother, gawped at the front door with the distinctive cricket-ball indentation, and lastly, considered the number ten, in bold striking brass above the door. Sanctuary, he whispered as he raised his hand to knock.